take this off. Uh, you couldn't see me smiling when you were greeting us, but now you can. Such a pleasure to be with you guys. It's been such a long trip. You know, we were supposed to be here in September and got pushed back and pushed back, but we're so thankful to God to be able to be here with you this morning to share, to share God's Word. So I want to just uh, briefly, as my custom is, just go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Well, God, I come before you today and I thank you because you say in your word that the things that were written in the past were written for our encouragement, that we might have hope. And I pray that as I share your word this morning, God, Lord, that you would move through the power of the Holy Spirit, illuminating, bringing to life the text of Scripture. I pray that, Lord, you would give me clarity of thought as this has been a long trip. And I pray for all those listening, give us ears to hear. Open the eyes of our hearts so we can see your glory just pray that you would be with me in a, in a special way in this short time that we have together. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Isn't it amazing that God wrote a book? I don't know if you've ever thought of that. That is absolutely amazing. And we hold it. And we get to share uh, with people from it. I'm going to share with you a story that comes from Genesis chapter 13 today. So the story is going to come from Genesis chapter 13 and it's the story of when Abram, he's not Abraham just yet in the story, he's Abram, when he separates from Lot. So I'm going to give you a little background to the story before I begin so you'll catch up to the point we're at. So Abram, as you know, uh, you may know, he was called by God and God told him, I'm going to make you a great nation. And he's giving him promises and Abraham leaves, he travels almost 800 kilometers through very dangerous places, coming to what is now the nation of Israel. It was Canaan at that time. And as he's there, a famine happens. And when that famine happens, Abram needs to find food. So he takes his family down to the country of Egypt where there is food. But he's scared. He's fearful. Now, this is an interesting reason to be fearful. He's fearful because his wife is so pretty that he's afraid. What's going to happen to me is that the king of Egypt is going to kill me. He's going to take my wife. So he tells his wife, Sarai, at this time, he says to her, uh, Sarai, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell them that you're my sister. So they get across, it works, and, and Abram is richly rewarded for the beauty of his wife, who he claims is his sister. Along the way, the, the, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, discovers this was a lie. He's very upset, and he discovers because God has placed a curse on his people. So God brings out Abram. He gets kicked out, but he doesn't get kicked out. He, he, he leaves with servants. He leaves with camels. And that takes us to the point we're at. So he comes out very wealthy. He was already wealthy before he went, and he comes out even more wealthy. And so that leads us to the spot that we're at. And he's traveling not by himself, but with Lot, who's his nephew. But if you know anything about this, Lot's father's died a long time ago, and Abram is much like Lot's father. These guys are very close. And so that's where we begin in Genesis chapter 13. And we catch the story. I'm just going to read for you the first 
seven verses, if you'd follow along with me. Genesis 13, 1-7. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, the place between Bethel and Ai where the tent had been earlier, where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So what we're going to see in these first seven verses is a problem. It's a problem that Abram faced. And what is that problem resulting from? The problem is resulting from, and I don't know if you guys understand this, being wealthy can be a problem, right? And actually at this point in the story, this is the problem. Abram is too wealthy. Lot is too wealthy. And as they have flocks and herds, there's not enough grass. And I want you to follow just a little bit this story. And it says in the end, right at the end, it gives us three reasons for the fighting. There's not enough land for the animals. Now, first imagine with me that your livelihood, which I don't imagine anyone in this room is a goat herder, is your livelihood or sheep herder. But imagine that that's your livelihood. Not only is it your livelihood, you feed your family every day from milk and cheese. You clothe them with the, with the clothing that comes from the animals. And there's not enough food for those. And so the lack of food produces a stress. And you've got two groups of men, and each of these groups of men that are taking care of the animals, they begin to quarrel. Because for, in their minds, they're not just fighting, quarreling, they're actually protecting their families. They're actually doing what it would take to survive. And so this quarreling begins between them, and as they're there, guess who else is there? The Bible mentions a detail. It seems like it's kind of a just extra, but it's not. It's intended for us to see. It says the Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So imagine if you're an enemy and you see a group of men and they look weak, but they look rich. You imagine what you start thinking? I'm going to kill them. I'm going to take everything they have. So this problem was a serious problem. And not only was it a serious problem, as many of you and I have noticed, there are, it was also a family problem. And it becomes a very big, big issue. Being wealthy can be a problem. Matthew Henry, commenting on this very passage, says this. Speaking of Abram, he says, He was very wealthy. Literally, in Hebrew it says he was very heavy. This is what Matthew Henry says. For riches are a burden, and those that will be rich do but load themselves. There is a burden of care in getting them, fear in keeping them, temptation in using them, guilt in abusing them, sorrow in losing them, and a burden on account of them. We will also be giving an account to God for them. Great possessions do, says Matthew Henry, make men heavy. 
The Brookings Institute in New York, which is an economic research institute, published an article called Happy Peasants and Miserable Millionaires. Happiness Research, Economics, and Public Policy, in January 30th of 2010. And Carol Graham summarizes her article in this writing, and she says, can we really compare, and this is what they did through a massive research project, they compared the happiness of peoples around the world. And she says this, can we really compare the happiness levels of the poor peasant in India, who reports to be very happy, with that of a CEO? who reports to be very miserable. She said, in all of the research we've done around the world, we can't come to an agreement about what makes people happy or sad. But she said, all of these things are relative. Happiness is relative. Brothers and sisters, if there is a lie plaguing the church of Jesus today, it is that happiness, listen to me, plaguing the culture first, Happiness comes with a dollar sign or an AED sign or a euro sign or whatever country you come from. That happiness can be bought. And, and in this story, we see very clearly they have all of the happiness that wealth could bring. But they also have all these troubles. Reminds me of the story of William Post III. There's a state in the United States called Pennsylvania. And William Post III won the Pennsylvania State Lottery of $16.2 million. It was paid to him, he decided, at $500,000 per year for 26 years. That sounds great, except for within a year, his brother tried to kill him so that he could take the money from him. Then his girlfriend at the time, who claimed she had also paid for the ticket, sued him and got a third of his winnings. Within eight years, William Post III had died. A million dollars in debt, having sold off every year. I warn you, brothers and sisters, the younger you are in here, the more you need to hear this. Work hard for Jesus. This world will pass away. Money comes with many things that may not be good for you. But this story is not about money, is it? It's not really the point at all. This story is about family. It goes on to say in verse 8, So Abram said to Lot, and here comes the solution, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. It's interesting that many of our cultures share in common what Abraham's culture does. And that is an honor for those that are older than us, right? A respect for our elders. Leviticus 19.32 says, You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of the old man. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. This was the culture at that time. And I want you to understand that what Abraham is doing here to Lot is counter-cultural. He is the older. He is the respected. He's the one who has the right. He could look over at Lot and say, Son, you're going to take this land over here that looks like a desert. That's yours. I get all the green land. But he doesn't do that. And this is where we get the turning point in the story. He looks and he says, If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. This is absolutely 
Amazing. It says that in verse 10, Lot looked around and he saw the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar. And it was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities and pitched uh, of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were very wicked, or were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. I want you to notice that it works. The solution that Abraham comes forward, you pick, works. Now, you and I read this story and we say, oh, that's probably not a big deal, right? It's not a, not a main thing, major thing that he does. But I want you to imagine, we know from later Bible stories that Abraham is able to gather close to 300 men to go to war with him. So don't picture that there are 20 people running around in tents out here. There's quite a lot of people with women and children. Each of these servants and men probably had wives and probably had children. So imagine all of these people, and your boss looks over, your leader looks over, and he tells the other guy, you can take the good land. And so everyone under Abraham's authority, Abram's authority, is going to lose, in a sense, because Abram makes this decision. It's a major decision. I remember giving a college conference to students in India. And as we were having the conference, I was teaching on Jesus and his amazing moment when he takes a towel and he wraps it around himself and he gets on down on his hands and his knees and he washes the feet of his disciple and I'll never forget we had a question and answer time afterwards and it was totally silent and finally one of the young men stood up these were Nagalis which is it's from the northeastern part of India and he stood up in the back and he said to me pastor we just all have one question does Jesus really want us to do this to other people. He wasn't talking about washing feet. He knew very clearly what I was referring to. Does Jesus want us to lose? Does He want us to get humiliated as we get down and serve other people? And I think this is the point of the story. You see, Abram doesn't only give up his rights. He actually has to humble himself. It's a form of humiliation. And he gets the worst land. At least that's what it seems on the, on the outset of it. It seems from the outside that's what he's getting. How could it possibly be good, Pastor, they said to me. How could it possibly be good to love others more than myself? Won't that hurt me? My answer to him was very simple. I said, do you remember who you follow? Jesus said, follow me. And part of being a Christian is losing. The title of the sermon today is Losing to Win. It comes from this theme in the Bible of repeated occurrences where a person humbles himself, but then later he's exalted. And it reappears again and again in the Bible. And so on the face of it, a person appears to be losing. And maybe in an earthly sense, all those around him judge him as losing. But the gospel message is just this. When we choose to lose for Jesus, 
we win. We always win. There will come a day when exaltation follows humility, just as it did in Jesus' case. And we're going to read in a second, as it does, for Abram. And I said to him, why would you be shocked that Jesus calls you to do this to this young man? See, you see, the world that God puts us in is an upside-down world. And I don't mean the world. I mean, Jesus calls us to create an upside-down world. Our values are countercultural to the world's values. And I reminded him. Jesus didn't win the battle by having a bigger army. He won it by dying on a cross. The greatest, Jesus says, will be the, the least of you. The weak, according to the Bible, are the strong. Those who are last will be first. And those who are foolish in the world's eyes are the wise in God's eyes. Why would it shock us that the opposite way is the way of Jesus? Jesus said this in Matthew 16, 25, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Yes. Jesus lost. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus, we're at the 18th of December. Within a very short time, we're going to be celebrating Christmas. Have you ever thought of what Jesus lost to come down here? Can you imagine being in the glories of heaven? No sickness, no pain, no problems, nothing. People literally worshiping him. But he takes on flesh. He chooses to be born not as a king in a palace. Think about this with me. Jesus' place of birth was borrowed. His tomb was borrowed. He never even owned anything. Barely the clothes on his own back. And that was a choice. He suffered constantly. He said, I don't have a place to lay my head. And he came down to sickness and sinfulness. He was betrayed by his best friend with a kiss. I don't know if you can imagine what it would be like for someone to kiss you, to turn you into your enemies to be crucified. He was denied by the closest followers. Peter said, I'll never leave you. You have the words of life. Where am I going to go? Just a little bit later, what does he say? I don't know this guy. He was whipped and beaten. Rejected by those who loved him the most. Humiliated. He was brought out before a crowd on one side was a famous criminal known to be a robber or a murderer or something like this. And the crowd shouted, give us Barabbas. You see, the crucifixion that Jesus did was humiliating. It was painful. And just like Abraham, but in a much greater way he lost. He paid the price on the cross. And then he looked at his disciples after victory and rising from the dead. And he looked at his disciples and he said, follow me. Come, let's make disciples together. You see, many times we confuse what it is to follow Jesus. Listen to me, husbands in this room. Some of you think following Jesus is serving at church. But let me, maybe you need to follow him and wash some dishes too. I used to think... Following Jesus was going and doing some job for him somewhere. And I began to realize as I followed him, it was about changing diapers sometimes. 
It was about serving others. It was about being the one in the room who had the answer, but being quiet and letting other people talk. It was about watching young people grow and it, giving hours of your life to do things you don't normally do, playing with little children. It's about watching those around us and we get opportunities every day to choose, will I live for me or will I live for Jesus? And this is the story here. Listen, some of you are struggling in your marriage, and this is my challenge. Stop looking at the other person and reminding them of their duty. Start dying to yourself. Start losing. Marriage is so powerful. It's, it's God's example of His love for, between Christ and the church. But the Bible says Jesus, Paul says Jesus is our example and that He gave Himself up for her. And so this losing that takes place, you've got to embrace this, brothers and sisters. I don't care which culture you come from. If you want to follow Jesus, this is your culture. Become those who die. But I have good news. And the good news is this, that like Jesus, there's always something that comes behind death. It's following on the heels of losing. It's following on the heels of humiliation. And this loss, brothers and sisters, is so powerful. Let me just give you one short story to illustrate this. There's a kid named Daniel Boyers in the UK. Daniel Boyers is about 10 or 12 years old when this story happened. He had cerebral palsy. That's a, a severe kind of disability, but he also was mentally handicapped. And every year his mother would make him participate in the school's races, foot races. And he didn't want to do it. He actually had braces on his legs. He would lose terribly every year. And he cried this morning, the morning of the race to his mother, please don't make me go. And she said, you need to do it. He showed up at the race, dressed for his race. All the kids, about eight or ten other boys, are lined up at the starting line knowing I'm going to lose. The gun goes off to run, and they take off, but an interesting thing happens. You see, the boys had gotten together before the race and made a decision to lose. And as the race begins to go, Daniel begins to win. And he's mentally handicapped, so he doesn't really understand what's happening he really believes he's winning the race. And as he gets to the end, he begins to shout up and down, I won, I won, I won. You'll never understand the power of losing. You see, the same thing that motivates Abraham and motivates Jesus and motivates those boys is love. You want to die? Love the other person around you. And you'll die. You'll gladly give your life out of love. And that's the example we have from Abram. For his, in a sense, adopted son, Lot, that's what he was to him. He was willing to give up the best. And I want you to see how this story turns. Lot thinks by looking with his eyes. If you pay close attention to the text, verse 10 said, he looked, right? Did you catch that? He looked around. Lot looked around. 
But I want you to see how verse 14 starts off. And the Lord said to Abram after Lot parted for him, look around. Look around. You see, Lot looked around and he said, oh, the grass is greener. That's where I'm going. He's gone from him. Abraham has lost in commas. And he comes before him and God says to, to Abram, hey, no, no, no. You look around. Look to the north. Look to the south. Look to the east. Look every direction around you. Verse 15, all the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. Old Testament theologians talk about these as embedded figures of speech, narratives that occur. They're repeated words or phrases in these Old Testament passages. And what they're intended to do is stand out. You see this word offspring or seed? It depends on which translation. It is a repetition in the book of Genesis. It's carrying a story across here. God's not going to abandon the children of Abram. And, and this is a promise he gives to him. I'm going to give it to your land and your offspring. And he says this, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. We went to the desert last week in, in Dubai. My first experience there. I'd never seen sand so fine. It was literally dust. It was like dust. Piles of dust, you know. And I think to myself, this must have been what Abram saw, right? Literally pick it up and you can't even see a grain of it. It's so, so thin. But can you imagine? He says, this is what your children are going to be like. And, and through the Bible, we come to understand he doesn't only mean the Jewish people. You see, you and I, by faith, are children of Abraham. And the land that we're waiting for is one whose foundation cannot be shaken. It is a world in which there's no sin and death and crying. And the promise to Abraham, your children will be like the dust. That is you. That is me. And though he looks like he's losing, we come to discover he's the winner. He's the real winner because in the end, Lot turns and the Bible says, but they were great sinners against the Lord. In just a second, they get judged. It's going to end Lot's time. He's going to be held hostage by kings and need to be rescued. But he chose what he thought was better. And so Abram comes here and he illustrates to us a very great principle in the Bible. Listen, here it is. Here what I'm about to say to you. As I talk about losing, I know everything in you wants to resist losing. So here what I'm about to say. Everyone loses. You hear what I just said? Everyone will lose. You either as a Christian choose to lose now and gain forever, or you choose to live for now and lose forever. That's your only choice. You're going to lose. You just have to pick which one you want to lose in. And my challenge to you is to see stories like this and understand how they speak in powerful ways to us today. You see, Abram wasn't only motivated by love when he saw Abram. I want you to understand when he saw Lot in his situation. He wasn't only motivated by love. Abram had been receiving these promises as I spoke of, these these ideas that are reappearing through the book. In 12.7, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I'll give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. And Abram's going to worship. He's going to worship again and again. And listen, this idea of Abram's faith and the promises of God and Abram's worship, they come together and they give him the strength to die. Do you understand? By faith, he chooses to lose. Because he sees what's coming. And you want strength to do this? 
The strength can only come from the unseen, from believing not what you see in front of you, but like Abram, believing a promise. And so the challenge for you and I this morning, see, many people look at me and they say, you must be crazy. Don't you know where Ruiz is? It's out in the middle of a desert. And I, and I look and I say, what a glorious calling that I could die, that I could go and serve because everyone is going to lose. So we just choose whether we lose now or later. And with humbling ourselves before the Lord, yes, there may be a time and there may be pain, but listen, He will lift us up when His time comes. That's the way He works. So as we close today, my challenge to you is that you would take a look at this story, this narrative that appears, and it reminds us of the great narrative of Jesus. We read the passage from Philippians. It was read to us by Jonathan. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Merry Christmas to you for that, by the way. <laughs> he gave it up to come on Christmas. But he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself. Humbled himself. He, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And what does it say in verse 9? Here we go, same story. As Abram's repeating again, therefore God has highly exalted him. He's bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Let me ask you a question as I close. Do you know this Jesus? This Jesus. Hear my word. Do you know this Jesus? The one who humbles himself. You know, like Lot, we can be drawn to the world. We can be drawn to what our eyes see. And I don't know if today there's someone watching this on a live stream or maybe in the room who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, doesn't know God in a personal way. And let me challenge you, this God that we see in the Bible, yes, He is loving and He's caring and He's beautiful and He's gracious and He's faithful and He's a promise giver. And I can't explain to you what it is to have a relationship with that God. It's so amazing. But let me tell you something else. He will hold the guilty. And He will punish them. That's, his, that's what He is. He's just at the same time. But by God's grace, just as we're about to celebrate Christmas, we were reminded that God sent His Son. He sent His Son to be born of a woman, born under the law, so that He would fulfill everything that God, God had asked of men. So that when He went to the cross, you see, both sides of God meet. They intersect at the cross. The love and the grace of God comes with also the justice of God. And the sins of Jesus, excuse me, the sins of us are being punished on Jesus as if He were us. And the justice of God is poured out on him. And he's receiving the strokes and the blows and the humiliation and the shame. And he's being crucified and he's dying and he's hanging on this cross. Justice of God is seen. No one can look at God and say, you're not just to punish sin. 
But at the same moment, the love of God is being poured out at the exact same moment. And God is showing His love. And today, that is for anyone here who would place their faith in Jesus. Anyone listening. Turn away from the world. It leads to a path. Choose to lose now. Choose to believe. Choose to follow Jesus. We go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. And just briefly, Lord, open your word. Crack it open. Begin to think about these things, Lord. I pray that we would choose in all of the aspects and areas and positions that we have to not just take our rights as authorities, as the older brother or older sister, husbands or parents to their children or bosses to their workers, just not choose to use our rights, but also serve. That we follow you, that we would humble ourselves before you. Give us the grace, Lord. And I pray that if anyone here is not clearly understanding who you are, Lord, that they would seek to understand that. Turn from their sins and choose life. Choose life. And we thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for this church. Thank you for their preaching faithfully the gospel in Abu Dhabi. We just pray your hand of blessing would be on it in the days to come. We thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.